When the tavern is six by six. When the Underdark spills to the surface. When Lennon is banned from the scrying pool. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 167th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, May 22nd, and released Wednesday, May 26th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventures Pack, Ryu shows me something that's low-key my favorite thing. There's no D&D news this week, so instead we take a long rest. Don't you mean a short rest? N- nope, this is most definitely a long rest, as we head into the archives of Candlekeep and discuss the drow. Before finally heading over to the scrying pool to see what you all have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our Adventures Packs. Do you always carry this much in your bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid roll for. While I don't like maps quite as much as Lennon does, I do prefer to have maps or at least a plain battle mat ready for in-person games instead of just using narrative combat and roleplay because I like to know where my characters are in relation to things that they can interact with. But the problem for me with printable maps or wet erase battle mat rolls is that they either take up a lot of space, a lot of printer ink, or a lot of time just away from the game because of either having to smooth out the curling edges of the map roll or having to draw and redraw the map whenever the players enter a new area. And that's what I really like about the battle mat books from Loki Battle Mats. These are books of at least 40 pre-made, lay flat, wipe clean, mix and match battle mats for use at the table in the standard one inch grid. Adjacent pages in each book can be used to make the map larger. So a 12 by 12 map can become a 12 by 24 map just by using the adjoined pages and laying the book flat. The two pack books, which give you a total of 80 12 by 12 maps, can be matched up to make an even larger 24 by 24 map with almost every page combination matching up fairly seamlessly with multiple other pages in the second book. So you can have combinations like a port on one side and dock warehouses on the other. The Big Book of Battle Mats has 58 maps that are 9 by 12. The Giant Book of Battle Mats has 62 12 by 16 maps, and the Little Book of Battle Mats has 46 by 6 maps. The Little Book of Battle Mats is also great for random encounters or encounters in smaller spaces like bridges or maybe self-sealing rooms in a dungeon. And they can also be added on to the bigger maps to give just a little bit extra space onto it. The books come in different themes as well, such as dungeons, of course, towns and taverns, sci-fi, and cyberpunk. And each book comes with two pages of plain grid, so you can still draw your own maps if the need arises. Loki also offers some dungeon dressings, 
such as extra scenery and spell effects in the form of static clings that can be added to any of the maps to add some more flavor to the game. Loki most recently added a couple of fold-out 24x24 battle map boards that are available in grasslands or stone dungeon tiles, and I already like these better than my rollable battle mat because it not only takes up less space in my gaming closet, but I also don't have to fight the curling edges when trying to get my combat area drawn up because it's fold out instead of rolled up. You can get a pretty good bang for your buck too, as each book, like I said, has at least 40 maps with prices ranging from 10 GBP for the little book to 35 GBP for the two book sets. And they ship worldwide with the main headquarters being in the UK, which is great news for Lennon, and especially Lennon's wallet. Yes. Really, the only thing about these books that I can think of that would be a con is that they're grid only, and I don't think that they've had any plans to release them in Hex at all. Also, if you live outside the UK, EU, or the US, you might have to pay extra in customs charges on top of shipping, so keep that in mind as well. But other than that, these are great maps, and I really love the mix and match aspect. Gath and I spent a pretty good while with our two-book Towns and Tavern set matching up different play areas, like a rundown town with a makeshift fort outside. And we were also thinking about stories and battle tactics that could be used on each combination that we came up with. And we're really looking forward to our meat space games getting started back up again so that we can use these maps to their full potential. So I was actually very surprised. I was saying to Ostron before we started this recording, because these were originally a Kickstarter thing. And when they were on Kickstarter, there was a lot of discussion about it in the Heroes Rise Discord. When me and Ostrom were at PAX, we went to the booth and we discussed it with them and we saw the maps and we were, you know, chatting to them and couldn't actually grab anyone for a, a formal interview. But uh, we saw them there. We saw what they were like. There was a lot of discussion that went on behind the scenes at Heroes Rise or, you know, like I said, in the Discord. Never done it for an AP. And I'm kicking myself because these things are really good. They are, like Ryu said, books of battle maps, but the key thing is they're spiral bound in the center so that they lie completely flat. Even if you have sort of page like 3 and 37 open, they still lie flat. It's all in how it's bound together. But yeah, these are really good in terms of their design as well. They look good. They're really nice little pieces. And much like you, I do quite like the little 6x6 editions that they have as well. As many people know, I'm always excited when any company that makes RPG materials acknowledges that there are RPGs beyond fantasy ones. Yes, there are sci-fi battle mats and cyberpunk, which isn't actually one that you see that often. No. Yeah, that, that was also an interesting inclusion. And I did want to note I noticed that, at least in the sci-fi book, a few of the maps actually are hex-gridded. Uh, it's certainly not the majority, but a number of them did have a hex-grid rather than a square grid. Yeah, I think that is purely in the sci-fi ones. Yeah. And then it only seems to be the space-based ones, where for space-based battles and RPGs, they tend to use hex-grids more, whereas D&D or in the case of the sci-fi books, anything planet-side still has the traditional one-inch square. Yeah. I was also thinking that I have, at my home game, set up a, a larger 
a battle table. Like, it's probably about four feet by two feet, I think, or maybe even a little larger. Which means a lot of these maps, except for the ones that come in the big books, are sort of smaller than what we typically use. But I was also thinking if you have a table set up like that, even though it's sort of a horrific prospect, you could actually cut these pages out of the spiral binding and just use them as like dungeon tiles and they'd still match up. And you could possibly even finagle some more combinations out of them because you wouldn't have to worry about making sure you were keeping adjacent pages. But that's probably a more extreme edge case use that most people wouldn't need. Uh, as Ryu and Lennon said, I think a lot of these work very well just as is fold out the map and you're good to go and i would argue that if you're going to do that they actually have all the mats available on drive rpg's digital files so rather than cutting up your book just download that and print them out links to loki battle mats can be found in our show notes but is there something that's an absolute must have at your tables found a cool app book or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters if so let us know about it on social media at heroes rise dnd or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's take a long rest as we head into the archives of Candlekeep to discuss the drow. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Okay, so thank you all for meeting with me right now. I have an uncomfortable subject to discuss. Look, sometimes the outhouse is just too far to walk and someone's been in there forever and it's like really an emergency and the scrying pool, it, it's self-cleaning anyway. And I mean, like everyone's done that, right? Um, what? No, please don't be talking about what I think you're talking about. Oh, um, no, I wasn't just, uh, so what was it you wanted to talk to us about? So I think Katie's been doing some research. Oh, that kid. Good. I wonder if she's been using Rostro for it, too. I haven't noticed you passed out on the floor any more than usual. I, I usually sleep in my bed. That's not important right now. I think Katie was in a hurry and ran into one of the research beholders, and it knocked the hat off. I was suddenly standing in the annex holding all these file folders and a couple of books. Okay, uh, put them all down, spread them out. Let's take a look at what we got. Right. Um... Well, here's a bunch of maps. Oh, gimme, gimme. Yeah, um, there's lots of dates on these. Maybe dates, anyway. I'll have a look at those. Alright, and I'll read through this. Wait, 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 wait. The elevation numbers on these can't be right. They're all below sea level. Actually, some of them are below the seas. Hmm. There are meta-references here to different planes. Orth, Faerun, something here on Eberron. Oop, pass that here. Um, there's lots of drawings of spiders on everything here. Oh no, why would she be looking up Lolth? Oh great. Mm-hmm, that explains these maps. What? Drow. What? Why is she researching the drow? I mean, why didn't she just ask me? I think we probably have to go through all this to find out. If she needs information about the drow and she's not asking you, that definitely worries me. It looks like she started with most of the basic info anyway, but we'd better review to be sure. 
Well, I mean, everyone knows the basics. Do we really have to go through all that? Well, since we have no clue why the killer DM was going through this, I think we'd better review everything to be sure. If she focused on something specific, it might give us a better idea. Do we have time for all of this? I think we should probably find the time, don't you? I mean, I'd rather not wake up tied to a spider statue with a bunch of half-naked women lighting fires and screaming in Elvish again. Again? Weird Lennon backstory later, killer DM research now, please. Lennon, I think you ended up with the start of the basics. Okay. Yeah, so, drow are one of the most iconic races, or technically sub-races, to exist in D&D that aren't part of normal fantasy tropes, or at least they weren't when it was first conceived of. Even though the fantasy genre wasn't quite as popularised as it was now, most people in the 70s and early 80s at least had a mental image pop into their head if you mentioned humans, dwarves, elves, or goblins, thanks mostly to J.R.R. Tolkien and a few other fantasy cartoons and movies. Nowadays, that list also includes Drow, and according to Ed Greenwood of Forgotten Realms fame, it's Gary Gygax's most influential fantasy creation outside of D&D itself. Indeed, the visual design of the Dark Elves in popular fantasy games like EverQuest, Warcraft, Guild Wars, and several other game and book franchises either copied or were heavily influenced by the visual design of the Drow, if nothing else. But let's start with their origin. Drow, particularly Dritzt de Urden, are usually associated with the Forgotten Realms and Faerun, largely because of the individual just mentioned, but they were an original creation of Gary Gygax for first edition D&D, and that means they started in Greyhawk. For those that don't remember or didn't know, Greyhawk began life as Gygax's personal campaign world, and it's often hard to tell in the early years if Gygax's concepts began as elements for his campaign or as new additions to the D&D game. Either way, Gygax said the drow were initially created because he wanted there to be a large, hostile, humanoid society that served as the major power in the Underdark, or the subterranean network of caves and caverns under most of the campaign world. There's no solid consensus on where he got the ideas for their look or for their name. At various points in interviews, he cited a few books on fairy mythology, as well as Funk and Wagnall's unexpurgated dictionary, some editions of which reference drow as a word associated with old Scottish folklore, and the term also appears in references on Norse mythology. Wherever they came from in the real world, their start in D&D came with the first edition monster manual, where they were listed as a subrace of the elf species, but only ever mentioned as rumors and rarely seen. Their society and temperament were not detailed, nor did they have a separate stat block. The only unique identifier for them was that they tended to be poor fighters, but strong magic users. The first instance of Drow getting more attention was in a series of adventure modules from First Edition published in 1978. Beginning by pitting adventurers against an alliance of giants, it's eventually revealed that the Drow were the driving force behind that alliance. A following series of adventures takes the characters down into the Underdark in pursuit of the source of the Drow, and eventually leads them to Arelhai Sinlu, a large drow city in a module titled Vault of the Drow. That module has a detailed description of the drow city, and either explicitly or by inference establishes many of the main features of drow society and behavior, which we'll cover in a bit. That was the only official source of information on the drow until the publication of the Fiend Folio in 1981, which included the general information about drow as a species, even if it didn't go into detail on drow society. Following that, players had to wait for the Unearthed Arcana, which was the title of a source book, not a source of untested concepts like it is today. Published in 1985, it was the first opportunity for players to actually create a character that was a drow. 
Information about drow society was largely expanded by novels. Gygax himself penned four books that featured drow from 1986 to 1988, but those aren't what captured everyone's attention. By 1988, the Forgotten Realms were a thing, thanks to Ed Greenwood, and he put Drow in Faerun along with most of the other races and creatures that existed for D&D. That opened the door for Mr. Robert Anthony Salvatore. The Icewind Dale trilogy released from 1988 to 1990, and did three things. It funded Salvatore's retirement, it made players think Broody Edgelord was the coolest character concept ever, and made Drow one of the most recognisable races in D&D. The trilogy and the literal dozens of follow-up novels featured a male drow, the aforementioned Dritz Doerden, who forsook his chaotic evil nature, oppressive society, and underground environment to make himself a heroic adventurer and central figure in many major events of the Forgotten Realms. Regardless of your personal opinion on the character or the novels, they sold exceptionally well, and are arguably the most read materials related to D&D. Eventually, many D&D fans took material in Salvatore's novels as canon, and anything he wrote about how the drow or the society functioned was treated as definitive. Meanwhile, as far as the actual game was concerned, 2nd edition was rolling along and the drow made their statistical debut in Volume 2 of the Monstrous Compendium, which also introduced the drow monstrosity, the Drider. The Drow of the Underdark, a resource penned by Ed Greenwood, went into great detail about the society, religion, politics, and all other aspects of drow society as it applied to the Forgotten Realms. While they are separate planes, there's never been much need or desire to make drow and greyhawk different from Faerun drow, so that resource filled in the gaps for anyone trying to make drow a bigger part of their campaigns. As he often did, Greenwood claimed the information in the book came from a discussion he had with Elminster and Susbrina Arkenheld, a drow who'd apprenticed to the Master Wizard. The complete Book of Elves allowed 2nd edition players to make drow characters by 1992. From 3rd edition onward, very little has changed about the drow until very recent discussions around 5th edition. Part of that is most likely branding and marketing. As mentioned, the Drow are one of a few D&D creatures that have actually transcended the game and crossed over into various forms of other fantasy media. Salvatore's novels, among other sources, have also made them recognizable as Drow to people who may not have ever played the game. Their influence is so strong that Paizo Publishing, a company at one time responsible for printing D&D resources, claimed that any D&D books that had Drow featured as cover art actually sold better than similar resources over the same time period. Okay, so I'm not really seeing anything here that would be interesting to Katie. Maybe the focus on the first time they showed up? I mean, would she have any reason to try to remove Drow from existence? I can't see any way that would help her, especially since that would remove Ryu from existence too. Hmm. Maybe she wants the hat to have been taken by someone else. She's been looking for an in with Ray Ray recently. I feel like if Ray Ray wore the hat, she'd just pass out from the internal conflict and then one of them would end up being destroyed. I can't honestly say who I'd bet on there. Either that, or they'd instantly ally and then there'd be some sort of killer Ray Ray supermerge. While obviously not something any of us would want, I think we can also agree it's not likely since she and Ryu get along fairly well. Is any of this seeming off to you? No, it all makes sense so far. Let's see if things get weird in her notes about actual drow. Physically, drow bodies are much like any other elves, with slender bodies and average heights that are slightly taller than humans. After that, though, their bodies diverge from the norm quickly. 
Let's get the elephant in the room out of the way first. Is Ray Ray walking around wild shaped again? Uh, ignore him. Keep reading. Yep. So drow are black skinned. Now, this does not mean the same thing it does when people are describing darker skinned ethnic groups in the real world. Drow skin is total absence of light, obsidian black. However, in certain early publications, the drow were merely described as dark skinned. Also in those early publications, most of the illustrations were black and white, and the artistic style used to depict the drow was very similar to how black and white illustrations of black individuals were often done in publications of the time. The combination of the language and the illustrations, as well as the fact that drow in early editions were always chaotic evil, is part of the reason many people are pushing for the revisions of race in 5th edition, especially as it pertains to player character options. Apart from that, the other prominent physical characteristics of the drow are their hair, which is described as pale and usually depicted as pure white, and their eyes. Originally, drow eyes were solid red and only a black pupil, but lately that's evolved so they have pale eyes with a variety of pastel hues. The eyes also give all drow dark vision, and an interesting note from lore of earlier editions is that drow dark vision was described not as their eyes being better able to make use of dim light, but actual infrared vision. Essentially, all drow were walking around with thermal cameras for eyes, and their eyes were actually hotter than their bodies, so viewing a drow with the same vision would show someone a very indistinct body with two brightly glowing eyes. That and several other things also made it problematic for drow on the surface. In early incarnations, they were uncomfortable or even downright frightened of the sunlight and the surface above the underdark, and in many cases incurred mechanical penalties for doing things above ground. Also, any drow-specific equipment would deteriorate or actually disintegrate in the sun. In more recent incarnations, the fear of sunlight is downplayed and the penalties aren't as severe, and they tend to only apply in direct sunlight. All drow are said to be accomplished with magic, something that's been depicted in various ways throughout the editions. In most cases, it means the drow characters have a certain number of spells or spell slots that they can use without extra cost or taking up resources, and racial bonuses to statistics tend to favour charisma and wisdom. Notable but not unique aspects remaining are the overall physiology of males and females. Though there are always exceptions, on average female drow tend to be larger and physically stronger than the male drow. That may or may not have been the result of the direction drow society took after the split from the more mainstream surface elves. However, regardless of gender, drow in general are also considered more attractive than average elves. Unfortunately, this isn't something innate to the species. In early drow history, there was a multi-generational selective breeding program that weeded out bloodlines and individuals that didn't adhere to the drow's goals of beauty. So I don't see anything worrying about this. You don't see anything wrong with aggressive eugenics. No, 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 not that part. I mean, in general, that information. The killer DM doesn't seem to be focusing on anything specific. I mean, thankfully. I don't want to think about her in charge of a breeding program, although that's stuck in my head. Can you please get it out? Hmm, maybe the magic stuff? But, I mean, she's already better at magic than most of the people in the guildhouse. Maybe it's a genealogy thing and she's trying to figure out if she was originally a drow? What do you mean, originally? Well, I mean, it's possible she's a manifestation of the hat's personality that evolved over centuries through magic, but it's actually more likely she was originally some sort of sapient being that either got trapped or maybe even placed her own consciousness in the hat. So you're saying she's a lich? N no, liches definitely have their own separate body. 
they may use magic to dominate others, but they don't usually possess them as a matter of practice. And they wouldn't leave a phylactery hanging around. Anyway, can we get back to the notes? We're getting into the longer section now. The history of the drow is complicated and contradictory, as it is with most societies that have suffered a major split. One thing most sources agree on is that originally the elves were all a fairly cohesive single race. After that, accounts vary. All of them come back to Lolth, arguably the most prominent god of the drow, and a fight between the premier elf god Carillon and Grumsh, the god of the orcs. Versions of the story that try to isolate the elven deities, most popularly ones spread by Morninkainen, say Grumsh managed to wound Corallon and, as he bled, lesser elven gods formed from the blood. One of these was Aroshni, the goddess who would eventually become Lolth. She believed in encouraging the primitive elves and the elven gods to be more ambitious and direct in achieving supremacy, causing enough of a stir that a council was called. During the council, which included most of the elves alive at that time, Arushni attempted to assassinate Karolon. The elves split into two camps, most with Karolon, some with Lolth, and there was a battle fought. Lolth's followers eventually retreated with her. Karolon was dismayed that anyone from his blood resorted to fighting and made all the elves mortal, banishing them to the Material Plane, Feywild, and the Shadowfell. Other accounts kept by many elven historians tie the elf gods more into the overall pantheon and paint a picture of a larger war that wasn't as much of an internal affair. Those tales say that Arushni and the other lesser elven gods were already around, and Arushni helped Grumsh in his attack on Karolon, which was the only way he managed to wound the elven deity at all. When that failed, she tried to get Malar, god of lycanthropes, to kill him, but that didn't work either. Eventually, Aroshni encouraged a whole host of lesser gods to ally and launch an attack on Corallon, painting the elven deity as weak and ripe for attack. She had cursed a scabbard made for Corallon's sword. She would give it to him as a gift, but it was enchanted to attract arrows shot by her daughter, Elastrae, making her daughter the scapegoat for when Corallon fell. Another lesser elven god discovered her plan, however, and despite Aroshni trying to imprison them, the plan was revealed and Corallon did not die. Aroshni was banished along with her children. Elastrae had a twin brother, Veoran, although her children are still technically recognized as members of the elven pantheon of gods, while Loth was made a full demon. Regardless of which tale you believe, in the end, Aroshni gave up her elven name, took on the moniker Loth, and proceeded to descend and take over the 66th level of the Abyss, now known as the Demon Web Pits. Where the drow got involved is also a matter of contradiction. The internal version of the story holds that the drow are simply the descendants of the elves who chose Lolth's side, and the various physical and metaphysical changes are a result of their migration to the Underdark, mixed with their devotion to Lolth. In the version where Lolth organized a divine conspiracy and war, the drow were actually still surface elves by the time of her descent. However, they were darker skinned, brown hues rather than black, and had issues with the lighter skinned elves in a series of conflicts known as the Crown Wars. Lolth's son, Veron, eventually got involved with the Dark Elf faction, encouraging them and lending them some of his power. When his mother finished conquering her level of the Abyss, she noticed what her son was up to and encouraged him to push it farther. He helped the Dark Elves enslave other creatures to fight for them, including some dragons. When Corallon noticed this, he allowed his elven clerics to essentially curse the Dark Elves, changing their bodies into what drow are today and driving them underground. 
Once there, they immediately started fighting with dwarves and with each other, creating a whole scattered set of city-states that remains to the present time. This is when the eugenics started, and when noble houses started rising to power and worshipping Lolth, eventually setting the stage for modern drow society. Today, the city-states are arguably the most organised and civilised areas of the Underdark, unless you account the colonies of mind-controlled minions, in which case the Illithids have the drow beat all over the place. Either way, they are certainly the largest. Drow settlements can reach over 10,000 permanent residents, with another several thousand coming in and out through trading caravans and general travel. The cities have thriving marketplaces, mostly based around buying and selling slaves and multiple unique buildings. Drow build most of the buildings in their cities by hollowing out stalactites, stalagmites, and fool cave columns, building everything within them and then connecting them with artful and decorative suspension bridges. Many of the buildings are supported by magic, so elimination or failure of the spells often causes significant destruction. All drow cities also feature heavy walls around them, with designated gates and a number of defences including magic traps, non-living guardians, and both creatures and soldiers protecting their borders. There are debates on the disposition of individual drow, but most people agree drow civilization as a whole is not a great model to aspire to. Slavery is a major and integral part of the drow society. Those 10,000 people I mentioned living in the city, up to two-thirds of them will be slaves or otherwise indentured individuals, either working for masters within the city, waiting to be sold in the market, or being processed from having just been captured by drow raiding parties. The reason we started with Lolth when discussing drow society is the two are inextricably linked at this point. Lolth encourages an extreme survival of the fittest mentality among her followers, and the drow have embraced that wholeheartedly. The minority in drow society that qualify as commoners are less extreme about it, but the noble houses would put the Lannisters to shame. The houses are constantly in violent and deadly competition with each other for supremacy and control of more territory and slaves within their cities, but the houses are also fighting within their own ranks as well. The only real method of advancement in a drow noble house is to kill the woman above you and take their place and that person is often your own mother, or older sister. The girls have roughly until puberty to figure out how to cement their place in society, and if they haven't figured it out by then, they likely won't live to drinking age. Also, the actual mothers are too busy plotting and scheming, so raising of children is mostly done through hired help, and maybe any sisters that are the right age to think helping a younger sibling is worth it. All of that only applies if you're a woman, by the way. Lolth is also very much into the kind of feminism that says women are smarter, stronger, more intelligent, and actually worth something as individuals, while males live only to service their betters and can and should be discarded whenever it's convenient. The only way men advance in a noble house is to attach themselves to a woman, sometimes literally, as women leading men around with chains and collars is not uncommon. The male rises in prominence as the female does, but the man can never reach the top spot. The heads of the noble houses are also priestesses of Lolth, and it's rarely possible for a male to hold that position because Lolth usually just kills any man who tries. Side note, nuanced gender politics is not a thing in drow society. If you aren't immediately identifiable as a woman who should be in charge of things, or a man who should be serving a woman, you are an aberration and an imperfection in society and eliminated as soon as possible. As one might assume from the arrangement just described, romance isn't really a thing with most drow either. 
Wolf encourages hedonistic behavior and wants all of her followers to pursue beauty whenever they can. Women will therefore take the most attractive men they find as consorts up to and until someone better looking or smarter or whatever comes along, at which point their current flavor of the month or week or day is cast aside and the new man is elevated, usually. It's also possible the woman in question will just keep a few men around at a time and the men better be okay with it. Or they'd better get good at making murder look like an accident. Oh, and men trying to catch the eye of another girl to move their way up is a very risky proposition. If drow women are fighting over a man, it's not unheard of for the one who has him to announce they're tired of them by skinning the man and delivering what's left to the doorstep of the woman competing to possess him. As for laws and so forth, trial by combat is pretty much the only rule and it's not organized. It's just assumed if you're alive, you're doing things right. The only caveat there is that the death of members of a noble house, particularly high-ranking houses, is seen as a sign the house is in disfavor with Lolth, and that makes the house look vulnerable. So planning a major coup is a delicate operation until it's time to pull the knives out. There are theoretically laws in drow society, but the only judicial system in place is bringing people before the Lolth priestesses, and they're not primarily concerned with justice. In addition to killing anyone you disagree with and sleeping with the rest of them, as long as you're a woman, worship of Loth involves a lot of sacrifices, preferably of thinking beings. The dedicated clerics and priestesses of Loth, who aren't heads of household, perform rituals of sacrifice and bloodletting to show devotion to and gain power from the spider god. The sacrifices are usually prisoners of war, drow considered too useless, deformed or worthless to society to remain there, or slaves that are either deemed worthy for some reason or go unclaimed. Also, as we just mentioned, guess what the most popular sentence is when priestesses are passing judgement in their trial. While all drow have some innate magic, many of them obviously explore that further. Most divine casters get their power from Loth, obviously, but regular wizards and sorcerers are around as well. The priestesses of Loth are in charge of making sure all of the clerics and casters maintain an appropriate devotion to Loth and the goals of the drow, and so at a certain power level they undergo a test of Loth, either because the priestesses decree it, or rarely, when Loth takes an actual interest in them and summons them to the abyss herself to administer it. If they pass the test, they increase in power and favour with Loth. If they fail, they're painfully transformed into a drider, a half-drow, half-spider creature who is either exiled from drow society to wander the Underdark and contemplate their shame and failure, or corralled into a drow outpost to be unleashed against invaders as frontline suicide attackers. They retain most of their knowledge, intelligence and power from when they were an actual drow, but the combination of that and the sense of failing Loth and the drow tends to make them a bit mentally unstable. Okay, no, that's enough, we need to stop this. Stop the worship of Loth. Okay, fine. Do you want to start with the cults and the entire civilization of Drow that worship her? Or do you want to just head down to the abyss and take her out direct? No, no, I... Uh, hang on, can we do that? No! Okay, fine, fine. Anyway, I, I meant we found it. Look, religion where women rule everything, hedonism and random fatal violence, survival of the strongest and no real laws to speak of. Tell me that this is not the killer DM to a T. Well... She probably agrees with some of it, but I don't think- Okay, 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 just stop. This is no time for rational skepticism. We've got an emergency here. Do you really want to be walking around chained to a crazy homicidal woman for the rest of your life? I mean, I think Riri and I could get behind that. See, see, she's already got the conspiracy started. 
Oh, I was kidding. Mostly. Anyway, calm down. I know Katie. I'm 90% sure... Well, 70% sh Okay, I think if she were going to start taking over like that, she would have at least given me the heads up. And besides, all of this means worshipping and devoting yourself to Lolth. Can you honestly see Katie worshipping anyone other than herself? What if she fakes it until she's ready to take over? The killer DM is the most straightforward being I've ever met. She never bothers to deceive anyone. She just forces them to deal with whatever's going on, and then if they get too nosy, she kills them. She keeps secrets all the time. Yeah, but she doesn't lie about them. If someone finds out about one of her secrets, she owns up to it right away. And then the killing. And then usually the killing, yes. Anyway, if she were going to start a cult of Lolth, we'd already see spider statues everywhere in here. Trust me, that's not it. Now, can we keep going? The other thing Lolth priestesses get to do is command cadres of specially and highly trained male fighting units who are fanatically devoted to Lolth. These groups are used for purges. If a group, noble house, or even an entire city is judged to be insufficiently devout in their worship of the spider god, the priestesses will send in their attackers to begin a purge. The purge may or may not be accompanied by demons the priestesses summon through their connection with Lolth. If this whole Lolth gig doesn't sound like a good time, unfortunately there aren't a lot of other options for the drow, and all of them will put them at odds with the main group. You remember Veyron, Lolth's son from back when the drow were becoming drow? Worshipping him is very popular, particularly with male drow and drow on the surface, because he's less focused on making sure the women are in charge and everyone's beautiful, and just wants all the drow to work together and re-establish their dominance on the surface, also known as back when he was in charge of the drow. It's said he desperately wants to wrest control of the elven subrace from his mother. Whether that's what his followers are also after, or if they're just attracted to the idea of ruling things on the surface, and maybe not enslaving an entire gender just because, depends on the individual drow. The followers of Veyron and the Underdark drow devoted to Lolth sometimes get along, but mostly they don't. The only time they really ever work together is if they somehow perceive a threat to drow as a whole, and the Underdark drow need more support carrying out missions and things on the surface, something the Veyron drow are more accomplished at. They don't trust each other even when they're cooperating, but then again, the Lolth-worshipping drow don't even trust their own relatives, so that's not really a surprise. And if you're wondering what the Veyron drow want from the drow that they can't get on the surface, the answer is poison. With assassination being a way of life for most drow, they have become experts at crafting all kinds of liquids, oils, gels, and coatings to make simple cuts or pricks on the skin a fatal proposition. The only other group of worshippers of any size among the drow are those that follow Elastrae, Lolth's other child. She alone in the drow pantheon is a god that has some amount of positivity. Officially, she is a representation of chaotic good, and most of the drow who try to resist the influence of the Church of Lolth and the worshippers will devote themselves to her because she doesn't represent a total departure from drow society. One of the goddess's primary tenets is to find and encourage beauty whenever possible, and as mentioned, the drow are very interested in making and owning things that are beautiful. As a result, many of the followers of Lolth's daughter who remain in the larger drow city make their living as artisans, creating beautiful clothes, pieces of art, or architecture. Of course, the actual priestesses of Lolth don't tolerate competition, so anyone caught worshipping Elastrae is usually killed or sacrificed as soon as possible. That makes exile a much more appealing prospect for most of her worshippers, particularly because the goddess has always promoted the idea that drow should return to the surface and the forests of their ancestors. 
If a drow is living outside of an underdark settlement, and doesn't seem to be regularly hunting around for people to sacrifice or enslave, and also doesn't seem to be interested in killing other elves and re-establishing a kingdom, it's very likely they are, or were, followers of Elastrae at some point. While Loth's teaching about making the drow constantly fight each other to make sure only the strongest survive is good in theory, in practice it does little to promote drow society as a whole. Drow birth rates aren't any better than any other elf subrace, and it's even worse because any child that isn't objectively perfect is killed as soon as possible. That means that while the drow would like to establish complete dominance of the Underdark and eventually everything else, mostly so that they can enslave more people and sacrifice them to Loth, they lack the numbers and cohesion to do it. So they've established a sort of equilibrium with the rest of the world. Drow city-states are very much separate entities, and if you survive and are granted an audience to ask a prominent citizen what they think of other drow settlements, they'll dismiss them as clearly inferior. However, the city-states maintain regular trade back and forth for supplies, and usually only fight with each other when there's been a major slight or if there's some sort of religious purge as mentioned earlier. Everything else in the Underdark is fair game for either enslavement or elimination, with a few exceptions. Troglodytes and most of the barely sentient beasts are regularly enslaved by the drow, with the exception of purple worms because nothing in their right mind tries to do anything with them except run away from and or kill them. Some drow will try to take beholders as guard creatures or servants, but that gets tricky. They have the right level of paranoia for drow, but the random insanity can get problematic, so it's more common for the drow to drive them away from their territory. The drow don't try to enslave deep gnomes because they think it's much more fun to make a bit of sport out of hunting down and killing them. There are three major groups of underdark creatures that are exception to the drow's usual ammo. Duragar don't really get along with the drow, but they have roughly equal strength. The drow's magic proficiency is offset by the Duragar resistance, for example. And their societies often find themselves with enemies in common, so they have been known to occasionally ally for convenience's sake. Illithids get a pass from the drow as well, because the mind flayers can often get access to places and resources in the Underdark that are difficult for the drow to reach, and they're another good market for unruly slaves. Finally, deep or purple dragons are sometimes known to work with the drow on a temporary basis. The drow find it easy to arrange an alliance because the deep dragons can be bought off with a simple promise of maps to unknown caverns in the Underdark. However, the purples are even better at manipulation and scheming than the drow, not to mention their breath weapon that can just flat out dominate other creatures. So they don't seek out those allies often because everyone involved tends to come out of it even more distrustful and paranoid than when they went in. Every other race from the surface the drow know about are generally dismissed as people to be killed, enslaved, or both, most especially elves and dwarves. The elves they don't like because even if they don't follow Veyrun's dogma, they're still kind of bitter about the war way, 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 way back when and don't mind getting some payback. Their beef with the dwarves comes from when they first traveled down into the Underdark and had what could be called an imminent domain dispute with the dwarves that were actively mining in some of the best spots. Those resource issues flare up every now and then and can also be a reason for the drow to ally with Dwergar if and when a group of dwarves is being particularly annoying or stubborn. One thing drow will acknowledge is that many of the service races make better slave stock than the ones in the Underdark. If nothing else, all of them smell much better than the troglodytes do, so surface raids by drow are definitely a thing. It's also another point where the Veyrun and Lolth drow find common ground. Some Veyrun drow may get into capturing beings as slaves who can be traded to the Underdark settlements in exchange for authentic drow equipment, 
poisons, or other resources it's harder to get on the surface. Those raids are often the only thing many surface dwellers will know about the drow if they aren't scholars. There will be rumors or stories of dark or black elves that come in the night to kill and steal people away, often without any knowledge of the larger Underdark civilization. Even if people have heard of upstanding or morally upright drow like Dritzduarden in Faerun or Landis Bree in Greyhawk, they often assume they escaped from a small band of drow raiders, not Underdark cities with their own culture. A brief note about the drow in Eberron. Along with orcs, the drow received one of the most extensive alterations to their disposition and character as compared to how they're portrayed in Greyhawk and the Forgotten Realms. Without going into an extensive history of Eberron, because Rio and Ostron are giving me looks and all that, in this setting, all elves were at one time a slave race under control of the giants. The dragons of Eberron had taught the giants a lot about magic to help them defeat the Korai invasion of Eberron, but the giants essentially went mad with power. The dragons stepped in and, with the help of the elf slaves, basically destroyed giant civilization. In current Eberron, giants are mostly confined to a continent called Zendric. Almost all drow live there as well, mostly out of a belief that they are entitled to the ruins and power of their former master's civilization. They travel throughout Zendric in tribal groups, scouring the surface for artifacts and magic items, and worshipping a scorpion god named Volkor. This is except for a small group called the Solitar, who believe they should carry on the teachings of their masters and one day ascend to the Plain of Fire. The Solitar maintain a permanent settlement on the surface, where the other drow settle underground, if they settle at all, and tend to be a little more aggressive and prone to evil activities than their brethren. They also have more advanced knowledge of magic than almost any group in Eberron apart from the dragons, at least where fire is concerned. Because of how large and how inextricably tied to the histories of certain races drow are, it's very easy to work them into a campaign in almost any way you like. Starting with the common trope of a village coming under attack from an unknown force, the unknown force could very easily be drow. Most official resources for D&D have assumed for decades that if a group is headed into the Underdark, they will encounter at least a few scouting patrols of drow, even if they aren't the main focus of the group's trip underground. As mentioned in the notes, any large settlement of dwarves or elves that are close to underground ruins or caverns has a decent chance of being in a conflict with drow, ranging from border skirmishes to full-on war-level conflicts. So if you want a campaign or an adventure centered around two warring factions, Putting the drow on one side makes it pretty easy to determine the why of a conflict breaking out. That is one thing to note in light of some discussions happening around modern D&D. Drow have always been one of the races where it's been easy to go to them as a guilt-free group of intelligent but evil opponents where there's minimal, if any, debate about motives or justification for eliminating them simply because they're drow. More modern interpretations of the race are encouraging a holistic approach that focuses on the fact that worship of Lolth and the level to which the religion's philosophy has suffused most of the drow culture is more of a factor in their behavior and outlook, rather than it being some innate part of their being. This is not to say that the drow are simply misunderstood or unjustly vilified. 90% or more of their race make deceit, murder, slavery, and living sacrifice a central part of their lives and do it gladly. But the existence of Yilstrali's followers among the drow is proof that it's not something all drow are required to or want to believe or follow as a lifestyle. Well, you know, I, th I think Katie's alright, but even I can't see her trying to start a movement to reform the drow. Maybe. Maybe. She's trying to ally with a group of drow raiders to attack the guildhouse and establish her reign of terror. 
You really need to let that go. Hey, come on. It's the most plausible theory I've heard coming out of all of this. Do you have a better one? I have to admit, all this seems pretty straightforward. I can't figure out what angle she has, if any. See? See? Exactly my point. Uh, Ryu, do you have any insights to share? Ryu? Uh, What are you doing with my things? Uh, uh, um, Ryu found them, and uh, um, Ryu found them, and she brought them over to us. She asked us to have a look. Get out! Drop the papers and get out of my sight. If I could just ask, you don't have any spider idols on order? Now! Um, Katie, it's not really their fault. I found the papers. And you didn't think maybe they're private and I wouldn't want the Katie battery and the map moron looking at them? You don't do research. Katie was weird. And I mean... I like them, and you aren't always nice to them. I was a little worried. Well, fine. Just forget it. You don't have to worry about anything. I'll just go back to my usual things. Don't be like that, Katie. If you'll just tell me what you were doing, I'll smooth it over with them, and they won't bother you. What? I was trying to get you a birthday present. I don't know anything about the drow except how they look and how to kill them. I don't know what you would like, and I thought figuring out more about them might help. Aw, Katie, that's so... If you say that's sweet, I'm selling peaches to a halfling tribe in Eberron. Oh, um, I appreciate the effort, then. I suppose you have to go round up Tweedledum and Tweedlestupid and go check on your mail or whatever. I have seen Ray Ray peeking out the door a few times in the last couple minutes. Well, go on then. But tell them you had to talk me off the ledge from dismembering them and feeding them to the mimic or something. Your secret's safe with me. I'd give you a hug if I could, though. You know, I can still detune myself and go find another creature to bond with, you know. But you won't. (sighs) Hang on. What do you mean, feed them to the mimic? Katie? Uh Uh-oh. What news from the north? Join us of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, so what do you think of the latest book from Wizards of the Coast? Do we have Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, a well-crafted tome of information for running a horror-based campaign? Or is it Ricky's Guide to Spooky Town, a conglomeration of everything that might relate to horror, but lacking structure or really useful tips that inexperienced DMs can use? Carcer, Mimic Enthusiast, replied on Discord to say, Hey guys, I'm so sorry for not answering your questions recently. I was house training my newest Mimics. But for some reason, they just can't get the windows right. So thinking about paladins and such, I was considering the idea of a paladin to an evil god who later broke away, making them a good Oathbreaker. The real downside I've found to Warlocks is that I have yet to find guidance on how to play a Celestial-based one and how to use the deity's alignment in that way. Such as using... 00002, the head Modron dude in the plain Mechanus as the lucky warlock's patron. In terms of the bumper book of fantasy horrors, I love the idea of using some of those spaces for my own campaign, but I can't see me running a full-on horror game. It would get so depressing, especially for a level 3 to 20 game. I enjoy using horror aspects like wibbly tentacle things in a dungeon or 8, but probably not for a full campaign. Oh, and villages entirely controlled by Oblexes can be fun too. Thank you for keeping me sane with these awesome episodes, guys. Electric Loop Guru on Discord says, 
As both a horror fan and a player who's in the minority of enjoying horror in my gaming group, I'm quite happy with Fenricton's Guide to Ravenloft. There's enough variety to allow for interesting new characters and settings without going full Nightmare Fuel campaign. I look forward to seeing what my DMs pull from this resource to use in future games, and already have my Dampier Barbarian ready to go. And Phoenix on Discord says, I really wanted to dislike this book. I mean, really. But I love this book. It gives me what I want in an official release. Lots and lots of options without bogging down in minute details. I love the fact that they didn't stat the big bad guys. It allows the DM to create openings where the big bad guys stay just out of reach of the heroes. This is maddeningly frustrating for the players and makes me giddy. I also wasn't expecting the amount of genres. These can easily make plot points in other campaigns. A great resource. I'm surprised at how this seems to go against what Wizards of the Coast has been doing for the past few years. It is clearly made for an advanced set of players and DMs. Newer players will rightfully be intimidated by this book. The sheer volume of information plus the lack of stat blocks will most likely turn off newer DMs from using the book. On the other hand, I feel this book will appeal more to people outside of D&D. Horror is a very popular genre and I feel this book will cross platforms. Finally, I was against this book when I heard of its release, but I am pleased to say I was wrong. Again. I Spectre on Discord said, I am happy with Van Richten's. It emphasizes the how and why of running and playing a game of D&D in a way that I feel is missing in most other books. I would venture as far to say that all other 5th edition content is completely focused on the what of D&D 5e. There are parts of the Dungeon Master's Guide and other books that veer into how, but the tone is different. I don't plan on running a horror campaign, but I will definitely use elements from this to create encounters and arcs in other campaigns to be a better DM. Chivalry Bean on Discord says, I played some kind of classic module. There was a wizard lab, slavers, Greyhawk, slave lords, I think. But I can't say I enjoyed it for a variety of reasons. Maybe not all of them were the module itself. I did play 4th edition Tomb of Horrors, and it was fun, as we knew what we were getting in for. The bad part was getting Big Bad Evil Guy to 1 HP, and then he regened all HP, and we had two more hours of gameplay. Only to realize I had forgotten to roll an extra crit die, which would have avoided that whole regen thing. And TR Knight also wrote in on Discord, gave us a couple of links to some updated classic adventures that we're actually going to steal for a future adventurers pack. And he did ask a question of the wider community about people having played classic adventures. I would actually just encourage everybody to jump into the Heroes Rise Discord though and keep that discussion going because I think it's a very good one to have. But sorry TR Knight, we're not going to read your feedback this week because we want the links for ourselves, thanks. That's a love for Rickies. Hmm. I mean, I think it's well-deserved, actually, and I think Phoenix yeah. raises a good point that I think what I actually like about this as compared to the previous versions is that um, it it is something that is for people who already play D&D. Like, there's, there's a lot of stuff there, like he said, that would be intimidating to first-time players. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily, you know, a good thing. I'm not trying to gatekeep or anything like that, but I appreciate that the book has gone into a lot more meat than other releases have and i think that sometimes when you're trying to be inclusive and open to new players that you can sometimes swing it too far in the let's not give enough info range on the note about going cross-platform though i still personally feel that if you want a game that is properly you know vampire focused or that sort of thing then i would definitely look at things like vampire the masquerade world of darkness uh, a lot of stuff by white wolf werewolf the apocalypse that sort of thing because they're designed for that whereas this is putting horror on a fantasy game system 
but I do think that if you have a bit of an overlap, then this is definitely a, a way to capture some of that segment there. I agree with you that I think this was either inadvertently or possibly intentionally targeted at more experienced people. And I think that may actually be something of a weakness of their move away from the sort of cataloged releases they used to do, where they do monster manuals Y through Z and dungeon master guides A through D or whatever, because it means that the books they are releasing can veer in a bunch of different directions. Like, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes had a lot of monster stat blocks and a lot of monster lore, and could arguably be said to be a monster manual. Whereas this is much more like a more traditional setting guide, where they were like, this is how everything works in general, these are the different sites you can pull, these are the characters you can use, but it doesn't give all of the mechanical details, it doesn't lay out a full adventure for you that you can just read verbatim. And they haven't done that very much lately. Dare I say, it's probably the only real setting book we've actually had for 5th edition. I mean, we've had setting books, but not like this one. No, I mean, compared to what setting books used to look like, I think you're right. Because the other ones were essentially adventure modules writ large, wrapped in a lot of um, extra information. But like, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, as much as it wanted to be, was not a setting guide for Waterdeep. Because they left a lot of things out. And unless you want to use the like story beats and locations that were already included in the modules you really have to do a lot of your own research to fill in the gaps right but even if you compare it to like ravnica theros and i'll even say eberron which are all settings guides this one actually feels more complete and more in depth than the others at least in my opinion which is sort of ironic because ravenloft is suggested to be sort of a boundless plane where you can keep right. adding as many dread domains as you like. But that's the thing though, is that they distilled it down to what makes a dread domain, how does a dread domain work, how does a dark lord work? It is boundless, but they have given you all the tools to be able to create your own. And I don't mean the way that they've done it in the other books of tools to be able to create your own of mild suggestion. Right. I mean, these have actually got almost written rules and guidelines that you can follow step by step and come up with your own entirely bespoke creation that fits perfectly in with the rest of the realm. And that brings us to this week's community questions. Have drow ever featured prominently in one of your D&D campaigns? If you played a drow character, how did you portray them? If you were the DM, what aspects of the drow did you incorporate into your campaign? And in either case, did you intentionally buck the trends and stereotypes of the race, or did you keep more to the lore? And also, how did you like spending a long rest with the hosts? Are there any topics you'd like to sit around and hear them discuss in the future? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 167th entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 168th entry on June 2nd. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com, or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. 
This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. And make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways that you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favourite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy, and be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you. To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time that you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience to grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all of your likes, your shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gath Memvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, our dungeon master and Adventures League correspondent, Indigo Spectre, our staff member we've not got a title for yet, Blood Lake, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Brenwin, and Tomosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Rinda Levins, Brewhammer, The Sobby, Rat Queen, and Amber Squirrel Craning. Vinsveft for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vinsveft.bandgame.com and Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. For finally heading over to 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 yay! <laughs> this is Lennon. Uh, uh, piss sink one. <laughs> this is Ostron Adventures Pack sink. Thank two. you. This is Ryu Adventures Pack sink three. For what it's worth, I was going to say this is Lennon <laughs> Battle Mats sink one. I was like, that ain't it. That's that's what I'm looking at, but that ain't it. Anyway, three, two. <laughs> Hold on, I have to stop laughing. I'm, I'm slightly sleep drunk, so everything's funnier. Links to Loki battle mats can be found on your sh- in, in in our show notes, not on our show notes. I guess it still could work and that you way. you were talking but... about somebody else's show notes. So. What? You said in your show notes. Mm-hmm. Did I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't you? I mean, I'd rather not wake up tied to a spider statue with a bunch of half-naked women lighting fire. Women? Women? Women. What a whimming. <laughs> I'd rather not wake up to I'd rather not wake up to I'd rather I'd rather not wake up. Honestly. <laughs> I'd rather not wake up to tie to tie to That can be arranged. <laughs> <Yeah>. Please. <laughs> and it's often hard to tell in the early years if Gygax's concap concaps. Yeah. Hang on, there's some fireworks going off. Are they that excited about the drow? Is Apparently. it a special day? It's a Saturday? I don't Happy know. Drow Day! 
Yeah. Yay. I mean, drow are pretty cool. I can hear them. I heard so, something. Yeah, yeah, quick question. Are they fireworks? Well, I don't... I have to ask. Yeah, but, I mean, heavy artillery is usually still restricted in even the most liberal gun control states, so I have to assume they're fireworks. But I think they could I mean... A a squirrel blowing itself up on a transformer sounds an awful lot like a gunshot, so... Sentences you'll only hear if you come from Texas. <laughs> You're not wrong. And racial bonuses to statistics tend to favour charism. Charism? Sure. <laughs> the drow don't try to enslave Sir Nev... No, oh, damn. <laughs> the drow don't try to enslave Sir... <sighs> Those resource issues flare up every now and then and can also be a reason for the drow to ally with Dwergar if and when a... Dr- Darn it. <laughs> a droop of dwarves gor- is what I was about to say. Yeah. Dwarves? <laughs> Those droopy dwarves. Yep. <laughs> and now I have a new creature to make. All right. <laughs> I look forward to seeing what my dims... Dims? <laughs> oh, my dims. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I already have my Dompier Bim... Bim... And I already have my dump here. <laughs> I want to know what a barbarian class is and how it stats up. This is 